welcome to the Cumberland Podcast. My name is Chris Fleming. I am the coordinator of adult ministry for the discipleship ministry team of the ministry council of the Cumberland Presbyterian Church. And today we're going to have our lectionary starter uh, for March the 17th. Before we get into that, I wanted to let you know about a resource that you may have been familiar with in the past and haven't uh, subscribed to, or maybe your church that used to subscribe to the Cumberland Presbyterian Magazine but doesn't do so anymore. I would highly encourage you to take a look at that again because Matt Gore and the CMT have done an incredible job of the magazine the last couple months and, and year. I think you're missing out if you don't subscribe, so I wanted to let you know that you can subscribe two different ways. First, there's the print edition, which is $25 for one year. It's $45 for two years, and that includes an annual copy of the program planning calendar. So that's a good resource to have in and of itself. Uh, But you can also now get a digital copy, and that digital copy only costs $10. So you can get all the information you want for $10. They also have a Facebook page. You can search on Facebook for the Cumberland Presbyterian Magazine. Uh, if you want to like that page, you'll get the uh, daily updates from Matt on those kinds of things. You can get more information by emailing Matt at mhg at cumberland.org. Again, that's M as in mom, H, G as in golly, at cumberland.org. You can also reach Matt at 901-276-4572, extension 221. Maybe uh, take a look at that, go to the Facebook page and see some of the content that they're delivering and subscribe to that because it'll be more informed about the Cumberland Presbyterian Church. It's a good, really good resource. They've done a really great job on that. All right, so that gets us to our lectionary podcast. And for today, our passages, the Old Testament reading is Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 12, and then 17 and 18. Psalm 27 is your psalm passage. Philippians Chapter 3, seven, verse 17, verse 4, 1 is the epistle. And then the gospel passage is Luke chapter 13, verses 31 through 35. I have to admit, I cheated a little bit. I've already preached this because I was preaching at a church that didn't uh, follow the lectionary. So I figured I'd kill two birds with one stone. I could prepare for this podcast and also go ahead and preach at the same time. So go, Chris, for that. Some themes for this week that you could uh, that tie everything together is that God is our shield and our great reward. So in Genesis, then, you actually have that terminology where God reveals himself to Abram and says, Fear not, for I'm your shield, and your reward is very great. In the psalm, there's this protection from enemies and a dwelling with God, right? So God shields the psalmist, but then the psalmist also says, The greatest desire of my life is to seek the Lord in the beauty of his temple. In Philippians, uh, Paul tells us to stand firm in the Lord and then to press on toward that heavenly calling, uh, which is our reward. And then in the gospel, uh, Jesus entrusts himself to God's protection, uh, but also accomplishing the will of God is uh, Jesus' greatest desire. And so you have, and so that in and of itself is his reward. He he sits at the right hand of God. So uh, God, a shield and reward is is a theme. The next thing that I see is living by promise. So in Genesis, this is where God promises again uh, a people from Abram, but then he also promises a land to where his people can, can become a great nation. In Psalm, you have the promise of God's love and protection, right? So you can live courageously in this world. And then in Philippians, Paul says, press on, keep going. Uh, it's not in this passage, but it is in Philippians. Uh, he who began a good work in you will see it through the day of completion. And so what Paul says is, you know, for what you've already attained, 
do those things. So the promise of God is that we will be sanctified. Keep striving for that goal. And then in the gospel, uh, Jesus Christ goes uh, to Jerusalem, or he's at the door of Jerusalem, and he says, I must do these things because he believes that he is part of the story of redemption. And so there's a promise that God is going to redeem not only the people, but also Christ will be raised again. So living by promise. And the last thing that I think ties it all together is living as strangers in this world or in the land that you're in. Obviously, Abram was a wandering Aramean. God had promised him a better country. And so he left everything that he knew to follow God, and he didn't settle down anywhere, right? He was always driving for that promised land. In the psalm, the psalmist is in the midst of his enemies, but he doesn't become one that seeks vengeance. He doesn't become one that uh, settles for what's around him. Instead, he takes his protection from God, and he seeks, again, uh, to, to know God in such a way that none of these earthly worries stop him from living or loving in Philippians, Paul says there are people that live as enemies of the cross and their minds are set on earthly things. But the thrust of Philippians is that we set our mind on heavenly things, that this world is not our home. We desire uh, a heavenly land or a heavenly city. And in the gospel passage, uh, Jesus Christ knew that uh, no one could kill him on this earth, but he was establishing something different. He was establishing a new order, if you will, a recreation and he is inviting everyone to be a part and, and to be different than the, the ruling class or the, or the culture at hand. So those are three themes that I think that can tie everything together. Uh, maybe one more would be a longing for transformation, that things would be different on this earth. For Abraham, he wanted something different. For the psalmist, he wanted to see God glorified in this world. Paul, he wanted us to realize that heavenly country and then of course christ longs for jerusalem and that they would be in peace and that they would submit to god so maybe that's another theme there so that leads us to the genesis chapter 15 passage and in this passage we see the great covenant between abraham and god now god's initial abraham or initial conversation with abraham took place in genesis chapter 12 and just to give you a sense of a timeline 10 years had passed since genesis chapter 12 to genesis chapter 15 so I think it's right for us to note in this world today that God works on God's own timing. Our culture might be a little more aggressive than that. We think promises should be fulfilled right away, and patience is seen more as breaking than strengthening a promise. Uh, but take hope. Little has changed since the time of Abram. He also thought God had broken God's promises. We see it in the questioning and the conversation that happened. God begins the passage by saying, Do not fear, for I am your shield and your great reward, or your reward will be great. Our English translations don't do a lot of justice with Abraham's response, but Abraham says, Pretty much, what good is your reward or protection? I'm childless. When I die, it's all going to end here. Take note of the honest, authentic question. He'd been living in ten years of patience and relative faithfulness, give or take some events. And then here comes God making another promise about children and land. Abraham must have thought, really, really, 10 years? I'm getting older. Um, but that initial resentment from Abraham or Abram gave way to trust and hope. God takes Abraham out and says, look at the stars, count them if you can. This is how your descendants will be. And we hear that great verse where it says, Abram believed God and God reckoned it to Abraham as righteousness. This has been a foundational verse in Western Christianity, and for good reason. 
Also to take note, though, in the very next chapter, Abram falters and uh, takes the promises in his own hands and sleeps with Hagar so that he could produce an heir. He believed God, but he faltered. Here's the thing. I believe God knew that would happen, but God saw what would be in Abram. God saw the intention of trust, and that was acceptable to God, faults and all. This is the message of the gospel. Do we trust that God will fulfill the promises? And that's the best we can do is trust. It's the best we can do to live in light of these promises, right? We'll fail. Oftentimes we'll try to hurry up things. But if our intention is to trust God in his promises, God will reckon it to us as righteousness. Now next, God promises not only descendants, but also a land by which Abram's descendants would develop into a great nation. But again, Abram questions God and says, what about some assurances? How do I know that I shall possess this land? Again, 10 years is a long time to wait. And this is where the passage continues to be a pattern of our understanding of how the gospel works. In this ancient time in the Middle East, there was a covenant that was made between people or parties that was as close to an unbreakable promise that we know of when it comes to oath-taking. It was the blood covenant. So in this blood covenant, you would get animals and slice them lengthwise in half, not like uh, not the small half, but from head to feet. Uh, and so, uh, number one, they had to be perfect animals. Number two, it was very bloody, and it was a lot of work to arrange these halved animals in such a way that you could make this covenant. The way this covenant worked was that one person would start in one direction, another person would would start in kind of back to back, and they would walk the entire path of these uh, halved pieces. And when they met in the middle, they would swear an oath to each other. That basically meant, uh, if I or you break this oath, may it be to may may it be like us with these animals, so that we would we would be killed. So it was it was very very um, it was a very deep oath. Number one, it took a lot of money and resources to do the oath. Number two, it was very bloody. And number three, once you've made that pledge, it has been seen with, again, your resources and with the seriousness of which you're taking the oath. But the key is, is that both people would be uh, in the oath. Both people would walk the paths until they met back again in the middle. God instructs Abram to go ahead and get the, the blood covenant ready. But then Abram falls asleep, and in the dream, Abram sees symbols of God going through and walking the path of the covenant. God did not ask Abraham to be a part, and what this symbolized was is that promise that God had given Abram was dependent completely upon God. In other words, it did not rest in the faithfulness of Abraham, or Abram. It rested only in the faithfulness of God. He was the only one that took the oath. God was swearing by himself that he would make these things come to pass. That was good enough for, Je- or for Abram. And, and now, uh, Jesus Christ, then, is our blood covenant. It is a one-sided covenant. Now, the question is, do we believe that God will be faithful? And if so, it will be reckoned to us as righteousness. What is also true is that we'll be just like Abraham, and probably in the next chapter of our lives, we'll falter, and we'll try to speed up the promises, or we'll try to act in our own sufficiency. But always remember, the covenant rests on God's faithfulness, not ours. So you could preach on God's faithfulness this week, you could preach on sacrifice this week, you could preach on trusting God's promises, or even preach on the nature of the faith of Abraham, and how our our faith understood through Abraham's trusting. Uh, Remember, Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. 
if I were to do this, I'd go with the nature of Abraham's faith, right? The outline would, outline would look something like this. Abraham had a personal faith uh, with God, in God. In other words, Abraham, or Abram, was intimate with God. And over the ten years of fellowship with God, you learned a thing or two. If we're not careful, then faith can be simply what we learn about God. Our faith can become nothing more than ritualism. I find myself sometimes in study of Scripture and in prayer just simply going through the motions. I make myself stop and I pray, Lord, I love you. I stay still. I stop praying. I stop studying. Sometimes I turn on... uh, YouTube and pick out a hymn and sing it, I try to hit the reset button and ask the Lord to be with me. Second, Abraham's faith was based on past promises. So Abraham didn't just simply decide one day that he was going to be faithful to God. Instead, God had proven to Abram to be his very great reward and shield. Abram had followed the call of God back in Genesis 12 to leave his family, his country, everything that was familiar, and follow to a place where God would show. Throughout the way, Abraham or Abram received progressive revelations. His faith became real because he acted it out, which leads to the third point. Abraham's faith necessitated actions. This, there is an age-old debate about whether you're saved by works or by faith, and this is a great theological point that we've already discovered, that we're saved by our belief and trust in the promises of God. But it does certainly have an impact on how we live and how we understand God. One thing I would say is it's a false dichotomy. You don't have to have one or the other. Those who live by the promises of God must act on the promises of God, or you're not really living on the promises of God. In other words, to be in a life of faith is also to be in a life of of action, doing the things which God would have you do. Abram wasn't very good at doing the right thing all the time, but his intention was to live in such a way that God's promises would be shown to be true. You can take marriage, for example. We make vows toward one another. We make vows to be our lawfully wedded spouse, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer or poor, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part, right? And when someone does not act out those promises or act in accordance with those promises, it wreaks havoc on a relationship. But those who deeply intend to fulfill those promises will act a certain way, and it will be faithful to the promise. Understand that our uh, submission to or belief in God is a trust in God that leads us to act in certain ways that are faithful. That leads us to Psalm 27. This is a great psalm, and it contains what might be my favorite verse in all the Bible. It's from Psalm 27, chapter 4. One thing I ask of the Lord, and that I will seek after, to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. The psalm asks the question, How can we live in a world when we're surrounded by evil and by enemies? And maybe we in America don't have to worry too much about being surrounded by evil and enemies because we live a pretty posh life. Maybe we're surrounded by people who want to harm us, to see us fail. And maybe God is our only source of refuge. Maybe our culture is changing us and we don't even know it. We have to make the choice whether we want to go along with culture or to live by a higher purpose. And that's what this psalm is all about. Uh, To preach this psalm, I think a good outline would be something like this. First, God is greater, and his resources of protection are greater than our enemies or circumstances. One of the cool stories in scriptures is when the king of Aram was at war with Israel. He would try to spring traps on the Israelite army, but there was a prophet in the land, and that was Elisha. 
Elisha would be warned and know what the king of Aram was up to. And so Elijah would see, would send the king of Israel uh, the battle plan and say, hey, watch out, be on alert, because uh, the, the Arameans are uh, seeking to ambush you. And so the king of Aram was really, really upset that this kept happening, and he decided that he was going to take care of the prophet of God that kept spoiling his plans. And so he sent a, a group to go take care of Elisha. When they get there, Elijah's servant wakes up and he looks out the window and he says, Oh, my, my, there's a lot of people here and they're ready to kill us. I'm going to go wake up Elijah. He wakes up Elijah and says, We have to get out of here uh, because we're surrounded by the enemy. And Elisha says, Do not be afraid, for there are more with us than there are with them. And Elisha prayed, Oh, Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened up the eyes of the servant and he saw. The mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. When the Arameans came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Strike this people, please, with blindness. So he struck them with blindness, as Elisha had asked. And Elisha said to them, This is not the way, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. The thing about it is, is that oftentimes we look at situations and circumstances in our lives and all we see are our resources to battle them and to care for ourselves. But God has promised his protection to us so we can live boldly even when we think that we're surrounded because God is working in the background in ways that we can't even see. And second, like the other passages, in order to survive and thrive in this world, our greatest desire must be heavenly. We must have a single-minded devotion to doing the will of God and seeking God with all our hearts. That's when the psalmist declares, The one thing I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, and to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. We're human beings. We live by vision. We live by hope. We live by promise. The vision can make all things right in that earthly things no longer matter when heavenly things are on your mind. Nothing can frighten you. Nothing can harm you because you're living at a higher plane and in the protection of God. And finally, we see how faith in the promises of God allow the psalmist to overcome his enemies and his troubles. In verse 13 and 14, we read this, I believe that I shall see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Trusting in God's providence of protection and having a vision of God allows us to live knowing that God will protect us and care for us, even now in the land of the living. The advice is to wait patiently for God to vindicate you. Cease your worrying, cease your striving, do not seek vengeance or manipulation, but wait on God and to see him show out. And that leads us to our Philippians chapter 3 uh, passage, chapter three fourteen through 4, 1. There's a couple ways you could go with this text. One way is to go about it is to speak of sanctification. And there's plenty of talk about sanctification in the book of Philippians. In verse 14, it says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the heavenly call of God in Jesus Christ. So that's one way you can do it. You could also start thinking about how you live holy in a world of unholiness. First point could be something like this. We're not perfect, but we live to the level that we've already obtained. Don't backslide because of circumstances or, or people that are around you. Paul says, hold fast to what you know and do what you know what you're capable of doing. At least do that, and then God will carry you forward. The second point would be surround yourself with people who are living the life you want to live. So the Protestant church doesn't really like the idea of saints too well. Uh, there are a lot of practices we deem heretical about them, but don't throw the baby out with the baptismal water, so to speak. Paul considers himself worthy of imitating. Life is extremely difficult. 
people like to say things like, well, the Bible says that I believe it and that's that. But what does that look like? I mean, when we're going through hard times, it's easy to, to say, take refuge in God or trust in the Lord. But what does it look like? A lot of times when I'm trying something new, I have to have somebody to come beside me and show me how to do it, or at least have an example, because I simply don't know what it means to do certain things, what it looks like, and so on. The Bible says things like, turn the other cheek, forgive one another, give to the poor, take up your cross and follow me. All these things are great, but what does it look like in this world today? We need examples of mentors and even past believers to help us understand what faithfulness looks like. Then there's a responsibility that you become such a person that could be imitated. This is what it means to go and make disciples. It's a never-ending chain. You take the example of someone who's lived before you. You, before God, try to live the best life that you can to such an extent that other people can imitate you and be successful and holy in this world of unholiness. And then third, set your mind on things above. In verse 18, Paul says, For many live as enemies of the cross. I've often told you of them, and I now tell you even with tears. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory is in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and it's from there that we are expecting to see the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humiliation, that it may be conformed to the body of His glory, by the power that also enables Him to make all things subject to Himself. In this context, enemies of the cross can mean many things. It was the Judaizers with their insistence on dietary laws and circumcision. But think of today. Our bellies in this world could be the appetites of the world. Money. It could be eating too much. It could be our addiction to everything. And our shame? Just look around the world. Last night, I read a story about a 14-year-old getting stabbed in the eye by another 14-year-old over a brownie. The world is shameful. Our longing, though, is to be like Christ. Our vision is to be one with Christ, to be transformed, and that helps us to live a life of holiness in this world. And that brings us to the gospel passage. Uh, One thing that I'd never noticed before uh, when studying this passage, and it, it amazed me, that I hadn't noticed it, that it was a group from within the Pharisees that came to warn Jesus. And that led me to an observation that we need to be real careful when assigning motives to groups. Evidently, not every Pharisee was trying to kill Jesus, but there were some who genuinely cared for Jesus or they wouldn't have gone up to warn him. We throw around the title Pharisee like they were a group in lockstep, that all the Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus. And then you think of Judas. He was one of the twelve, but obviously he wasn't completely devoted to Jesus. So maybe we need to be more careful in understanding people as individuals and less on the group they belong. I've noticed that masses remain faceless, but individuals have names. That's important. It's easy to assign worth to a group or worthlessness to a group when in actuality groups are made up of individuals and everybody has dignity. But this asks us also, this passage also asks us to ask what it means to live a a courageous life, I think, a courageous life of faith. Uh, And I think it's the answer is vulnerability and love. I've learned, because I, I have children now, that you can and will do all things for somebody you love. You will defend them. You will go to the death for them. But if you don't have care for somebody, it's easy to let them pass through or it's easy to pass them up when they're in need. Jesus continues going to Jerusalem because he had a profound love for the people that would reject him. Nothing would turn him around And that was for two reasons. 
Number one, because Christ had his mind set on things above. He wanted to glorify God and all that he did. You remember in the garden, Christ says, let this cup pass before me, but nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And second, he had a deep, deep love for the broken and, and the wicked, and he sought to redeem them. You might remember the scripture passage, which says that while we were still, still sinners, Christ died for us. So how do you preach this? I think you preach that you can live courageously in light of the protection and promises of God. In scripture, Jesus talks about not fearing the one who can kill the body. He says, do not fear those who will kill the, who can kill the body, but not kill the soul, but rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet one of them will fall not fall to the ground apart from your father's will. And even of the hairs of your head are all counted. So do not be afraid. You are of more value than many sparrows. And I think what Christ is trying to say is that if we get caught up with the desire to glorify God in such a way, what can anything on this earth do to us? Whether it's Herod or the Pharisees or the Roman council, whatever the cross, he can bear it because it means that they can, that he can glorify God. This keeps us motivated in the world when it's gone wrong, that we seek to glorify God. And finally, it means that we live by love. This is so deeply important. When Paul says, if I have the faith that can move mountains, if I give my body to the flames, but I have not love, I'm nothing. Jesus Christ showed a great, deep compassion for the people of Jerusalem. Even though he knew it was going to lead to his death, he loved them and would rather die instead of not having compassion upon them. So I'm done for this week. May the Lord bless you and keep you as you preach to our congregations. May God... in empower your ministry so that people see the truth and glorify God, love him, love God, and love one another. Amen.